Hi, I'm Rex Miller, and you are listening to The Resilience Lab, an Imagine a Place production where we explore how to integrate resilience into work and our lives through the journey and story of others. I am so excited to introduce my next guest. This is an individual who has literally changed my life. So I need to go back to 2016 when I was in the middle of researching the health of teachers. One of the sad truths that we came across is that teachers as a population are depleted. And in the process of becoming depleted, they've lost touch with what it feels like to be normal. At the same time, I was researching athletes that experience something called overtraining syndrome, the same thing, and seeing icons of sports. And some of my idols, like Roger Federer in tennis, getting 10 to 12 hours of sleep a night. Then I run across this device that all of these athletes were using. I quickly discovered the cost of trying to burn the candle at both ends. I was more like the teachers. I was headed for burnout and didn't even know it. So I reached out to Kristen Holmes, the Vice President of Performance Science for WHOOP, to try to understand what the device was telling me. And like I said, it changed my life. And I believe that the conversation that she and I are about to have will change your life too. So I can't wait to dive in to our conversation. Kristen, welcome back to the Resilience Lab. Thank you. And this is one-on-one with my taking a little deeper dive. But I'd first like to start out with, when did you first discover there was a WHOOP? When did you meet the founder, Will Mm -hmm. Ahmed? You kind of were in the similar competitive worlds together. And why did you buy on? You know, I I definitely, as a collegiate coach, um, I was, you know, gosh, in my just finished my 13th season wow. at Princeton University. You survived that long. Yeah. I know, I know. It was it was, uh, it was crazy, but uh, yeah, I I think what I saw when I was a when I was a when I was a coach, uh, we were collecting huge amounts of data. So we had an internal load data, we had external load data, subjective load. Um, so we were measuring a ton, and but the information that I was always lacking was the recovery aspect. Okay. You know, I I really didn't know when I woke up in the morning and I started planning practice for the day, I had no idea really how my athletes were adapting to the load that I was putting on them in practice. And actually what I ended up seeing in the data is that there was actually no relationship between the practice data and the training data and next day capacity. It didn't correlate at all. Why? Well, it's because it's the other 22 hours of the day okay. that was actually more influential when you're in a, ma- a maintenance phase. So, you know, during the season, you're just, you're not really trying to get, you know, fitter. You're not really functionally overreaching. You're just trying to maintain fitness levels. And what we saw is that, is that in this maintenance phase, it, there's no real load that we could put on their body in two hours that was going to have a significant impact on recovery next day. It was actually 
how they slept, how they ate, their hydration levels, um, what they were taking on board nutritionally that actually had more of an impact on wow. next day recovery. Obviously, it, it all works together. There's there's no doubt sure. about that. Right. But I think it was very, very clear. Uh, and we had heaps of data. Um, you know, we had chest wrap data. We had Fitbit data. We were pulling off um, the raw data and kind of transforming that and modeling it. You know, we had uh, GPS data. We had lots of data. We had subjective yes. data. <laughs> so I had some pretty sophisticated models, right? If, if I can't, if I can't predict their recovery, like their capacity next day, you know I was like, no one else can, you know, like yeah, it's really, right. so I, I started um, kind of going pretty deep down the rabbit hole of, okay, what would it take to actually quantify these other two, 20 to 22 hours of, of the day right. that would involve, you know, sleep. It would involve coming up with some sort of algorithm that could quantify recovery. You know, I was really interested in the mental health aspect as well. So really looking at, you know, this core psychological needs, you know, could, is there any way that I could kind of gamify that to get a sense of where my student athletes sat in terms of their purpose and their efficacy? Right. and their control, um, knowing that these are kind of our core psychological needs. So I was really, I started kind of building my own Whoop Dopplinger before I really knew Whoop existed. And I guess how I ended up meeting Will and meeting Whoop is that, um, you know, I was giving a presentation at, um, at Princeton on this kind of concept of this integrative, you know, physiological and psychological approach and using a device that could, uh, you know, and an application that would kind of quantify all these variables that we knew could help predict next day performance levels or next day capacity. And, you know, someone from the stands came up and said, hey, have you ever met Will Ahmed? And I said, no. And well, have you ever heard of Whoop? No. And um, he's like, well, you need you need to meet him. So um, yeah, like literally a couple days later, Will and I met in New York. And, you know, that's nice. kind of the end. Yeah. So what year was that? That was in 2016. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and six I, years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I met you in 2016 yeah. towards the end. Interesting. I so I said, I feel like it was literally like right. you're one of the first people I kind of Interesting. met. So what was some of the surprising aha's when you started seeing the aggregate data of the team? Because Whoop does have like a team dashboard yeah. where you can see everybody and, yep. and start seeing, you know, who's getting good sleep and who's not or who's... I think what's interesting is how variable it is, you know, just, <laughs> you know, everyone has their own routines and their own sleep patterns. And um, so I think just how, how variable it is across, you know, the individuals. And, and I think that's what makes Whoop so magical is that it really accounts for the individual. So um, I, I think, because you kind of expect a team to follow into similar patterns and they do to a degree, but it's mm -hmm. actually, there's quite a, a, quite a disparate like <laughs> spectrum. Um, so I think that for me was really interesting early on. And then I think just the other, I think amazing thing, just working with teams early on at Whoop is, is actually how uh, willing they were to make changes when you could show the relationship between some of these small changes and their performance on the field. Interesting. A lot of these athletes had just been chronically under-recovered. Right. So they just didn't even know what it felt like to have a green day, for example. So I remembered the word I was, it's overtraining syndrome? Overtraining syndrome, okay. yes. yes. So they were chronically uh, pushing it beyond recovery level. So when, right. when you do push yourself beyond recovery level over a period of time, 
what price do you pay? Where where does the body go? So yeah, so that's where like our traditional kind of like periodization models, I think mm-hmm. in some ways can fail if you have just like this rote training program that doesn't take into account okay. how you're recovering, how you're sleeping, you know, how you're eating and, and it's just basically so you're doing I'm the gonna, same workout. You do the routine, same workout no matter what, right. doesn't not that's accounting. That's what I was doing before I got weak. Right. And and I think the opportunity with the technology is you can and with individual athletes at a team level, you can say, All right, this athlete isn't adapting functionally to the training that's putting on their on the body. And yeah. what happens over time when you're not when your strain levels or your load exceeds your capacity over time, that can lead to overtraining. Right? Right. So to keep it in a functional place, you have to make sure that you rebound from workouts, which right. entails recovery, which entails oftentimes pulling back on volume and intensity. So we're able to see in the data, you know, what athletes are responding and what athletes aren't. You know, for example, freshmen during a um, a preseason are just they just are they're not as robust typically as say an upperclassman who's done you know preseason already three times and has yeah. you know built up this aerobic and anaerobic yeah. capacity and is just more robust. Um, yeah, so I think that 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 was a, a, a really interesting kind of finding is just the willingness for folks to change when they recognize that there was like real performance benefits to more rest and recovery and um, and being more individualized in, in the approach. So I don't want people to think this is just for high performing athletes. Right. Because, you know, it, it's been years since I did that, but I yeah. was what you might call a knowledge athlete or a mm-hmm. cognitive athlete or a workplace athlete. And yeah. I started seeing the same trends in fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I read all the symptoms of overtraining syndrome, chronic fatigue, yeah. uh, insomnia, yeah. depression, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, I, this is me. Yeah. And I was, the, the, the time it hit me that I finally realized that my routine was 10, 30, 11 every night, get up and go to the gym. And I was on the elliptical and I had read recovery you yeah. know i was low recovered yeah five minutes in i was gassed yeah and the first time it connected ah and um help make the bridge into what we're experiencing what are the load because i think people f- think about strain or load as being physical yeah but it's emotional and cognitive too which yeah. is what you i mean opened me up to our strain the strain on the whoop platform measures cardiovascular load and okay. to your point that can manifest via physical exertion, but it can also manifest via cognitive exertion. And we see this really clearly, right? Rex, we're, you know, giving a presentation or, you know, we're recording a podcast and we're activated, right? Our heart is pumping, we're delivering, we care about what we're doing and we want it to be good. So there is an elevation in, you know, we've got our basically activation is basically our sympathetic, you know, branch of our nervous system is, is activated. And we need that in order to generate performance levels. But what happens is, when we are chronically activated without appropriate levels of rest, that's when we start to see a degradation in performance over time. Let's pause on that. You said a vital word, chronically activated. Mm -hmm. So talk about what that means for employees, workers. Yeah. Being chronically activated is really the kind of the corollary corollary to kind of, uh, 
you know, overtraining. Yeah, no right? off switch. Yeah, no off switch. And yeah. and really, I think that's one of the most important skills of the 21st century is being able to toggle from an activated state to a deactivated state. Right. And it's it's and it's a skill that we can all develop. Um, and I think the consequences of not developing that skill are really burnout. Yeah. You know, and because I think we're, stress is not going away. I think that's what's really important for folks to recognize is that stress isn't going away, but how sure. we manage stress and um, and uh, adapt to stress uh, is is something we should all be kind of considering and thinking about. So there's lots of things that we can do and go on this path if you want to. Lots of things we can do during the day to kind of set ourselves up so we're, you know, going, you know, switching on and switching off in a, in a really functional way that helps us, you know, minimize those red days that you referenced. Well, and you showed me, I was starting to do mindful breathing mm-hmm. and I came to you and said, hey, I'm doing this. And she, and you said, well, it's okay if you do it right before bed, but that just gets you to sleep. Mm-hmm. Deactivating through the day helps reduce that overall cortisol level. Yep. So it doesn't, you know, I used to wake up at two or three in the morning. Yeah. Body temperature up. Yep. Liver, I, I'm assuming it's the liver purging the cortisol yep, in my that's system. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's called negative stress accumulation. So okay. what's happening when, you know, those many bouts of mindful breathing that you're doing right. during the day is basically kind of preventing that stress accumulation throughout the day. And, you know, by interrupting it, you're basically um, kind of stopping the cortisol, right? And you're reducing your heart rate. Um, you're, you know, enabling yourself to kind of get into a relaxed state where you're essentially recovering. And then you can re-engage your next task with a new level of focus. If we allow that negative stress to accumulate, to your point, um, even though we might be able to settle down or we might be so exhausted that we fall asleep, we end up with a fragmented sleep experience, okay, that, that, you know, we'll, we'll, be, indicate that we will have more disruptions in our sleep. Right, right. Um, we'll, we won't spend as much time in deeper stages of sleep. So uh, it's it's absolutely worth you know building in these kind of mini moments of of deactivation, um, so we can help ourselves fall asleep in the way that we want to, but then also have a nice consolidated sleep experience. So. Um, Dr. Kristen looked at my sleep app yep. today. Yep. <laughs> and you you used the word sleep architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the people listening might not know the different stages mm. and why every stage is important in the process. So let's just walk through quickly those stages and there's lots of references that you can go to if if yeah. you want to learn more. Yeah, people can search online for sure, but just at a very basic level, um there's going to be times, moments during uh, sleep where we're kind of awake, and we might not be able to tell that we're awake, but in terms of meeting the physiological criteria for sleep, well, we're not meeting the physiological criteria, right. and that gets bucketed as awake right. um, on the WHOOP platform. And then we also measure the time in light sleep, and I feel like light sleep kind of gets a bad rap, but light yeah, sleep is I, really important. You, you said it was important, and I always thought, ah, that's kind of a... Yeah. So why is well, it Well, there's important? lots of uh, things happening in the brain, you know, okay. during during uh, you know during light sleep, and it's, it's part of the transition. Um, it's there for a reason, you know? Um, and then REM is when we're consolidating memories and that's where a lot of the learning happens and whether and or not we retain. that's early morning typically? Yeah. So that, that will be, um, yeah, kind of in the back end of your, of okay, your sleep end, typically. Right? So when people 
don't spend enough time in bed, they end up shortchanging their time in REM. Okay. Um, so that's, and then what will happen is you'll end up with a rebound the next night and your body will overcompensate. But that's just a, a you know, kind of a, a bit of a, a vicious cycle that we tr- want to try to avoid. Yeah. So, you know, meeting your sleep needs are really important so you can get okay. into all these stages of sleep and, and have, you know, this really nice, um, you know, this really nice consolidated like sleep experience. Um, and then finally, soy sleep, which is when all of the um, physical restoration happens. And this is when, you know, you're physically regenerating and releasing it's when it human cleans growth all the garbage hormone. out of my brain. Yeah, the amyloid protein right. build so up. I don't get Alzheimer before my time. Well, and neuro, yeah, I mean, when we think about neurogenerative disease and, right. and the relationship yeah. to, you know, short or insufficient sleep, I think there's we can say that there's a relationship yeah. there. Right. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of work in that space to be done, but I, I, I think that it's it's clear sleep is a really important pr- you know, aspect to, you know, protecting, it's protect, it's neuroprotective, I think. Um, I, and I think we can say that. Yeah. So real quickly, what are the key kryptonites that kill sleep? I, one was I learned, I, the whoop told me that so many times you've had alcohol and my REM sleep <laughs> is down 40%. Yeah. And I said, oh, tattletale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I'll, I'll go maybe more basic than that. Okay. Alcohol, a thousand percent. It's, right. it's, it's, it's tough for folks, I think, to accept, but no amount of alcohol really is good for the system. Even so, early afternoon. I heard I one mean, podcast where yeah, someone said, drink. I'm a day drinker yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a half-life and I'm going, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. I'm going to hear the, what I want to hear. The further <laughs> your drink gets from when you intend to fall asleep, the better. Right. right. Um, but the, it still hits you. But it's still it's still going to impact you, yeah. right? Like there's still- your body has to recover from it's, it. It's a, processing alcohol is expensive, right? Yeah. Metabolically and- Ah, good. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, yeah. And, and I think, it, and there's a cost to that, right? right. Um, and it's just making the choice of whether or not we want to incur that that cost, you know? Um, right. Is it worth it? So, yeah. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm counting. Alcohol's okay. one. So alcohol's one. I mean, I would say if I, if I really want to give your- your listeners the keys to the kingdom yeah i'm gonna that's what i want keys to the kingdom well there's no question that light viewing is in terms of taxonomy the number one behavior when you say light viewing what what does that mean? so we know that light totally separate from sleep and totally separate from circadian rhythms that light has an influence on our mood and our energy levels. Okay. You okay. mean the color of the light or the day? Of- so viewing natural light okay. or not or viewing light at the wrong times oh. is going to impact our mood and is going okay. to impact our energy. So this research has huge implications on kind of mental health resilience Yeah. in that one of the, the therapeutic interventions is actually getting folks to view light at the correct times. And in our modern society where we have access to all these artificial lights, right. um, you know, we are, we get really at a phase of um, from the natural light dark cycle. So what we want your listeners to really think about is when they wake up in the morning, they want to view natural light, you know, within 20 minutes or so of waking up for as long as they can afford to to look at the and, light and just going outside, you don't have just, to actually see. You you the, want your retinas to yeah be to able to. You don't in, have to yeah pull, be yeah. safe. Don't look into the sun, right. but yeah. Just, but just being want, outside, it's, just being it's outside, that, that, that photon energy. Right. What mm-hmm. it's doing is it sends it. It's when the 
the light hits the retina, it goes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the control center of the brain that tells every cell in the body what to do, right? So your hormones, like you get that yeah. first cortisol pulse, right? right? It tells right. your body it's time to be awake. Yeah. But what's really important about that first pulse of light is that starts your um, kind of your sleep-wake kind of homeostatic drive. So if the number two is the light, and the number two is you want to try to go to bed at a consistent time. Consistency. But, but light yeah. viewing is going to, because of that, it's that oh. first pulse of light mm -hmm. is going to enable you to fall asleep and get that release of melatonin, right? Which is that sleepy chemical, right? Right. But it doesn't get, it, in order to, for it to know when it needs to be re released, we need to see that pulse of light in the morning. Okay. Okay. Oh, so you got to kick it off right in order to turn it yes, off right exactly Whoa. that's okay, really well that, said yeah but this is really yeah. this is really important right and yeah. and i think i think people think about a pre-bed routine but as soon as the sun goes down right right and if we to the degree that we can we want to bathe ourselves when we want to be alert and awake right. during the day lots of artificial light lots of natural light light is really good that's going to make us feel alert and awake and right. our system is going to take cues in terms of what it needs to be doing mm -hmm. right but then once the sun goes down we need to really think about creating as dim of an environment as possible. Is there a different color light you can use? So like you red want, light? Or yeah, something? red light, orange okay. lights okay. Um, are good. Um, yeah. We want to obviously avoid blue lights. Almost like a fire. You a know, fire, like a yeah. Fire would be color. amazing. Yeah, yes. okay, got it. But the, the key is to avoid blue lights. So our iPod pad screen, our computer screens, our phone screens, yeah. put all the filters on those. Um, but or, do, or do don't those use work? Them. I, I think they do to okay. a degree. Um, but you I, wear glasses too. I, 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 if I am going to be on a device, I, mm -hmm. I, I kind Food of look glasses. at it on the side or, or I put the glasses on for sure. Yeah. Um, but I really try, you know, after 8.30 or so, I'm pretty much shut down. Okay. Um, I'm a, you know, I, I go to bed relatively early. So like 9.30-ish, yeah. I'm usually asleep, uh, 10 the latest. Um, and then, yeah. But so... So that, that light viewing and then making sure after the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third, I would say, is your timing of your meals. Oh, okay. So, and, and I think understanding that all of these kind of work together. There's a phase relation between um, when we view light and when, um, and when we feel kind of alert and, right, and right. when we feel sleepy and, and when we eat our meals, right? And I think light is also going to have some sort of indirect influence on when we feel hunger as well. Yeah. So again, that pulse of light is really important to tell our hormones what, we, what needs to be happening. Um, but we want to probably restrict our, our meals. Um, and this has been, this is the work of Sachin Panda, um, who's done a lot of work. He's at a Salk Institute. He's done a lot of work on time-restricted feeding. And what he, so yeah. that's a word people may not be familiar okay. with, but yep. time restricted means it's just, you eat in certain windows and you stay in that window. That's exactly right. Okay. And now right. ideally, if we want to be super simple about it is when we only eat when the sun's up. Oh, okay. Once the sun sets, yeah. we want to generally not be eating anymore. And in a survey that Dr. Sachin Panda did, they, he found that people were eating for 15 hour blocks. Oh, and this puts over that period of enormous. Time? Oh yeah, can gosh. you imagine no, the amount? But I can't. but most people like that's a majority yeah. of the population are right. eating for fifteen hours of the day, right? Okay. Which is when there's only twenty four hours in a day. That's a really that's, long period I just of time. Can't conceive but of if that. you can, but if you think about like, oh, I'm gonna have a you know a granola and cereal before I go to bed, or you know right, you've just right. eaten, or I'm gonna have you know a big glass of milk, like. That counts, you know. Sure. But yeah. um, but what he's seen from the research is there's enormous 
health benefits. Um, to every system in the in the body benefits when we restrict our meal, our feeding windows to eight to ten hours. Oh, so my eating ha- I usually eat my first meal around eleven mm-hmm. to twelve. Mm-hmm. Today was a little later. Yep. <laughs> and try to finish by six six thirty. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. And and so Great. okay, it's amazing. Right. And what you've done is you've given your system so much time to restore and regenerate. Like you're yeah. not competing right, for resources. Digestion right? is, is is a parasympathetic right. activity, yeah, yeah. right? And rest and regeneration, obviously, and sleep is a parasympathetic activity. So yeah. you really want to eat when you're active, and you don't want to eat when you're resting. And I think that is counter to a lot of the advice that is given. Yeah. Right. We say, oh, we rest and we digest. No, no, no. Like you want That's what I've heard all the time. I know. Yeah, I know. Parasymp- rest and digest. Yeah. So and, I'm that's, that, and that it's is, good- it's, par- it's a parasympathetic, it's a parasympathetic function. But it has load to do but, it. Ex- but there's a cost. Cost. Right? right. And when we are wanting to restore and regenerate, like during sleep, for example, we don't want to allocate resources toward digestion. Got it. So when I'm getting ready to do a workshop or get on stage, I don't want to eat it something before because my cognitive awareness is going to be competing with what my digestion wants. So I either won't yep. digest well or I won't yeah, think I well. Yeah, I mean, eat for activity requirements, okay. you know, and, and I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm, you know, yeah, I'm going to stay in my lane. But I think, yeah. you know, if I want to focus, I eat fat. If I want okay. to, you know, if I need energy for a workout, I'm going to have, yeah. you know, some I heard rice you talk with honey. About or, rice and honey. Yeah, and, yeah. It's like my and like, MCT oil. Yeah, and yeah, MCT, yeah. exactly right. right. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I've kind of, kind of, so the whole rice thing, I have to wrap my head around because yeah. I have pretty much, I don't want to say I'm keto, but. Yeah. But it's, it's mainly protein and vegetables. Yeah, that, I mean, that's great. I mean, if you can get your, um, you know, your, your starch from your vegetables, that's ideal. Great. That's optimal. Okay. Let's talk a, a little bit about something, too. I have a theory mm-hmm. that one day management will be all about two things. Managing our autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. and managing our hormones. Mm-hmm. So, and I know most readers won't have no clue mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, but let's talk about what the autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. does because what I want you to unpack a little bit is how we set ourselves up for the body having to compete for resources yeah. because the autonomic nervous system is deciding where to put its energy and it's going to conserve it to the most important thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's well said. I, you know, I think this is a, I completely agree with you that I think the world is going to be divided into two. Um, Those who have control of their physiology and have control over their autonomic health and those who don't. And the individuals that have control of their autonomic health are going to have a survival advantage. Woohoo. Right. And and that's the opportunity here, right? And it's understanding, okay, what, what is the autonomic nervous system, first of all? And, and I can explain that. And how do, we, how do we measure our autonomic nervous system functioning? That's number two. And then what behaviors contribute positively to my autonomic control versus not? You're going right down the path. Yeah. I want to know all those things. Yeah. So, you know, so basically, so our autonomic nervous system has two branches. Okay. The parasympathetic branch and the sympathetic branch. And they're both competing to send signals to our heart. Okay. Okay. And that signal is going to be either, you know, fight or flight, i.e. I need to increase my heart rate. Or perform. And perform. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's sending a signal to my heart, hey, time to rest and digest or, you know, deactivate. 
right? Calm down. I like the deactivate. Um, yeah, I know. The activate or deactivate. Right, so like it's that. it's sending signals to the heart. Right. I'm either activated or I'm deactivated. Now, the ability of your heart to respond to those signals is a measure of your autonomic health. The less recovered I am, the more run down, the more burnout, the less responsive my heart will be to the demands of my autonomic nervous system. Okay. And your automatic and autonomic the, nervous system is telling you, I got to either turn it on or and and you can't. Exactly. Okay. So it's basically you're just imagine being able to get out of the way, get out of the way of an oncoming car, right? right? Like literally if we are the less kind of recovered we are, the less we're going to be able to adapt to those external demands in our environment. And they can be any type of demand. It could be simply getting out of the way of a, of a moving right. car, right? And being able to have that kind of a response, right? And be, my heart be able to send the signal in a, in a way that quick enough to get me to, to make that, that connection. So you, you shared uh, research on football players, mm -hmm. less, fewer concussions if they were rested. Well, is that, yeah. Is so, that part of that picking up the perception signals early enough, or is that a different? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think what's happening mechanistically there is so I think your your peripheral vision. So I think this is more related to insufficient sleep. Okay. So when individuals are sleep deprived, their vision uh, decreases. Okay. Okay. So peripheral vision specifically um, okay. declines. So your ability to kind of see an oncoming hit is going to be compromised when, um, you know, when you're, when you're underslept. Um, but then there's also when you're underslept, there is not a linear relationship between your kind of autonomic nervous system functioning, heart rate variability, okay. which I'll get to in, in a second, yeah. um, and, and sleep. So those aren't, it's not, there isn't a linear relationship, but gosh, they're very related, right? If we're underslept chronically, right. our HRV is going to decline, you know, over time. So Good, good time to yeah. describe what is HRV. Yeah, so basically that the function, the mechanisms I just described with the autonomic nervous system in terms of the parasympathetic and sympathetic branch competing to send signals to the heart, how um, we measure your um, kind of the health of your heart is how much variability you have between heartbeats. So there is the heart does not beat on a metro, metrodome like a metrodome. It's it's, so it's got, not sixty beats per minute. No, it, it's well the variation between the the in beats between those beats is going to vary widely, right. right? And the more variability you have between those beats, the healthier heart. Okay, and we measure that. Um, the measurement for that is called HRV, heart rate variability. Right. Okay, and this we measure this on the Whoop platform. There's you know other device trackers that measure that as well. But heart rate variability is an unbelievable proxy of how well you're adapting to the demands of life. So we talked about it in the beginning, the world's going to be divided. You know, those who have control of their autonomic nervous system, those who don't, those who do are going to have a survival advantage. Well, in higher your HRV, the more of a survival advantage, because that is a proxy for how well you're going to adapt to life demands. Okay, so how, how, how your heart can adapt to life demands. So the higher my HRV, the more I can toggle back and forth between turning it on and turning it off and getting into yep. rest and turning. Provided you have the tools to do so. Right. You know, there, okay. there's then there's kind of the second piece to that is like what behaviors actually help me have the strongest um, heart cardiovascular health and obviously right. exercise. Yep. But I think back to our earlier discussion, you know, I have a capacity level and I need to make sure that if I want to get fitter, I'm going to functionally, I'm going to overreach, but in a functional way. So I'm going to go just be at 
a bit beyond my capacity. And then I monitor my data and I see how my body responds to that. If it didn't respond that well to that, that load, I need to take, I need to pull back a little bit on my volume and intensity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one way to kind of keep your HRV in a good spot. Um, hydration is another, you know, eating unprocessed foods is another, um, you know, practicing breath work is another, um, I think, I think it's safe to, to talk about, um, some research that we've recently done, um, at a, a lab in Stanford where, um, we saw the most efficacious breathing protocol is the physiological sigh in terms of increasing heart rate variability. So tell me what that and is. And improving sleep okay. and decreasing feelings of anxiety. Um, so this is like the mother Just of all breathing <laughs> techniques. It's actually a double inhale, exhale. Oh. Yep. And that's exactly right. And okay. the second one is just a little bit longer than the first. Okay. But it's really hard to get wrong. And if you do this for, I mean, in the study, they did it for five minutes. And the other, we looked at it against mindfulness breathing, um, box breathing, and super oxygenation, which oh, yeah, we yeah, knew yeah. that that wouldn't, yeah, it's kind I've of the, that. the kind of, kind of throw that in version. there. Yeah. yeah. And then physiological sigh. <clears throat> and physiological sigh emerged as being the most efficacious and kind of in switching the flipping in, the switch from yep, activation to deactivation. Wow. Yeah. So it was That's the most deactivating. It seems like a key skill. It's unbelievable. I mean, we talked about negative stress accumulation, right? Right. Incorporating the physiological sigh throughout the day, you know, for even 30 seconds, 15 right, seconds, right. whatever you can spare. If you do that five to 10 times throughout the day, I am, I promise you, you will sleep better. <laughs> like there's no question. So what's happening to people? Who go from back to back virtual meetings yeah. or back to back corporate meetings? Yeah. What's happening to them? Yeah, I mean, number one, you're never changing your gaze, you know. So you're oh, okay. you have a very right. narrow vision, um, and we know that being zooming out, seeing landscapes, right. really important for our health. That's why um, we're here. <laughs> a lot of folks are sitting, so you know, yeah. just sitting is is not ideal. We yes. want to be standing and right. moving around. Um, so, yeah, it comes at a huge cost um, being huge on cost. Zoom yeah. all day long. Talk briefly about the whole cost thing about the body. I want to go back to, I don't think people realize the decisions they make, It they all have some kind of cost yeah. because your body has to expend energy yep. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And um, I don't know, maybe that explains it, but... I keep hearing you talk about how the body has to make choices mm -hmm. and we don't realize the toll that takes. Yeah. And I think we can't, it's really hard for us to perceive our own cognitive and physical declines. We end up just adapting to a lower level of functioning. Oh. And that's what's yeah. scary, right. right? Is we don't actually, that, and that's where technology is super helpful. We can see we know what our baseline is and right. we can see ourselves actually declining and then we can make a choice like, all right, I need to make some changes here. Right. But hopefully you make changes before you get to that kind of point of no return. Well, right. That was Where, my wake up call. Yeah. yeah. You know, I know right. I'm like picturing you on, on the elliptical at like 10 <laughs> o'clock at night, sweating in the red um, yeah. and having, and now having a reason I don't have to do this now. I'm yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I know it's a good excuse, but, but oftentimes, and that's where I think the psychological piece can come in. You know, oftentimes there's some days I will be in the red and I know that it has nothing to do with anything, any physical exertion I did yesterday. Huh. It was all cognitive. And in those cases, I always work out because it will always make me feel better. 
and invariably like and I, I'll do like a nice zone two run, you know, that's just But you just won't do it as intense. Or will yeah, you do it as intense? I, you know what? If I if it's psychological, yeah, then I don't even I just do what I my what I want to do. Okay. Like I just, you know, whatever workout feels good to me that day, right. I'll do it. Um if I know that I just did, you know, a ten mile ruck and then and you know, two mile swim or something, you know, like then then I know that it's yeah. it's probably physical and I'm gonna minimize my volume intensity. But um but if I know it's psychological kind of stress, then um hundred percent I'll work out next day, even if you know, even if I have a red score. So I've got two questions for us mm-hmm. to wrap up. I see Whoop moving more and more into the well-being mm-hmm. and the psychological side. So what's the frontier there that you guys are discovering and things that you're most excited about? Yeah, I mean, I think we've always, you know, this is an area that I've been very passionate and, right. and kind of brought. My background is in um, exercise physiology, but I have a master's in psychology. My PhD is in psychology and a lot of my work is in circadian kind of physiology. But really the whole the whole thesis is that physiology and psychology need to be integrated. I agree. You cannot decouple them. Right. And I think what's really exciting about HRV is that, and, and can be, I think, sometimes harder to unpack because it is so nonspecific. It can be physical, that it could be impacting, it could be part physical, it's part psychological. There's lots of things that impact, um, you know, how your heart is going to respond to those signals from your autonomic nervous system, right? Yeah, right. Um, so, so I think having what we're really trying to do in the work that my team is doing at WHOOP is we're trying to figure out how to decouple. How do we actually quantify the psychological versus the physiological? Oh, interesting. And that's by, you know, asking some subjective questions. Um, We're doing some other research that um, is is a little bit more, you know, invasive. but, um, But for the most part, I think we'll be able to kind of decouple this by asking, you know, some really good questions in a controlled study where we can start to see the relationship between some of the objective biomarkers that we're tracking and some of these psychological, um, you know, kind of emotion, um, you know, uh, questions. So WHOOP has been working with professional athletes, uh, first responders, Mm -hmm. military, but you're moving now into the corporate world and you've got some programs for corporate world. What, What are some of the programs that you think can really help a large organization. Yeah, I mean, I think at our core, what we're trying to do is just help people have a little bit of a better understanding of their body and what behaviors are going to, you know, contribute positively based on the science and what behaviors we know really do have a detrimental effect. And we're not judging. We're just saying, hey, this is what we know from the data, from the science, from all the research that we're doing. We want to take the guesswork out of of how people if if in fact the goal is to sleep better to recover faster then you know these are the protocols that you need to be engaging in so we want to be able to deliver that to our customers um you know in in as a simple way as possible so so people don't have to guess um and they can really take more control of their health well and what what i'm excited about because i work with a lot of teams mainly large capital projects but also corporate teams the whole idea of psychological safety yeah and less sleep and i get it you know i'm i'm not the the most agreeable father when i've not had a good night's sleep but yeah. you can see and especially in large capital projects where it's safety or somebody doesn't feel like they can raise an issue yeah um that was fascinating research that you guys are doing. There. Yeah, this is incredible. Um, so Dr. Gemma King, Nadia Fox, Dr. William Von Hippel, um, 
Amy Edmondson, right. Dr. Amy Edmondson, who's you know the godmother of psychological safety. Right. So we had an incredible team on this project, and and myself. And what what we did is we looked at um, 100 CEOs um, over the course of six months, and we um, you know were collecting all of their biometric data, right. and we asked their direct reports, the direct reports of these leaders, how psychologically safe they felt. Yeah. And sure enough, we saw yeah. a relationship between grumpy sleep debt, yeah, yeah, and grumpiness, and psychological safety right. of teams. It, so when we think about psychological safety, it's about yeah. you know how um, you know. Do I feel like I can show up to my work as my right. my most authentic self? Can I voice my opinion? Do I feel safe enough to voice my opinion? Um, you know, these are in what we've seen in the research. Aristotle, Google did um, a huge right. project mm -hmm. um, called Aristotle looking at, you know, what are the markers or signatures of the most successful teams? And the teams that scored highest in psych safety generated like 4.65 more million do million dollars more than teams who had less psychological safety. So that's like fascinating, right? Wow. So psychological safety, if you don't have it, um, it's, uh, it's a problem. And I will say there's some caveats to it. So I know there's lots of push for diversity and inclusion. Right. And ob obviously that is so critical and so important. But diversity and inclusion in an unpsychologically safe environment will crush your organization. So you need psychological safety. To even you need to be working that on that direction. in parallel to okay. the diversity and inclusion um, kind of efforts. My last question for you is: You're always, I mean, you're in the the you're in ground zero of performance optimization. It's mm -hmm. been your life. What's the next area that you want to develop to improve your performance or just areas of your life? I think I'm really interested in genetics oh. and I think there's a really good opportunity to kind of use genetic profile to help people understand you know where their where opportunities are for growth um, yeah. you know where their set points might be but what they can do with epigenetics to kind of move the needle um, so yeah I'm Great. really interested in and in, in that that's I think kind of the next frontier. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please check out the other Imagine a Place podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about building resilience, you can follow me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.